Thank you for viewing this Life to Tape video. Life to Tape is part of Fotations, and if you'd like to help, you can visit FotationsDonation.com, where there are ways you can support financially or by donating equipment. If you'd also like to support on social media, that helps out a lot. There's more information on our social media accounts in the links below. Thank you. Bye-bye. I have to place a warning for this uh, episode. We're reading two stories, and the second story is uh, involves slavery and the slave trade. And so I wanted to give you a heads up that if that's something you're sensitive to, uh, maybe you want to skip this episode. Uh, but it is there. Uh, but I do think it's an important story to illustrate what it was like uh, during slave time. And, and uh, it is slavery, but it's kind of more indentured servitude. And uh, so I did keep it in. But I want to give you a heads up that that is in the second story. So if you want to skip this episode, I completely understand. I just wanted to let you know that it was there. Hello, this is the Votations Life to Tape podcast. We are reading the book South Sea Tales by Jack London. The Whale Tooth. It was early in the it was in the early days of Fuji when John Starhurst arose in the mission house at Ruina Village and announced his intention of carrying the gospel to all Vita Luvi all Vitae Luvi. Now, Vitaluvi means the great land, and it being the largest island in a group composed of many large islands, to say nothing of the hundreds of small ones, here and there on the coast, living by most precarious tenure, was a sprinkling of missionaries, traders, fishers, and whale-ship deserters. The smoke of the hot oven arose under their windows, and the bodies of the slain were dragged by their doors on the way to the feasting. The Lutu, or the warship, was progressively slow and often in crab-like fashion. Chiefs who announced themselves Christians were welcomed into the body of the chapel, had a distressing habit of backsliding in order to partake in the flesh of some favorite enemy. Eaten or be eaten had been the law of the land, and eat or be eaten promised to remain the law of the land for as long as time to come. There were chiefs such as Tano, Tuscovo, and Tukala, who literally eaten hundreds of their fellow men, but among these gluttons, Ra Udendale ranked highest. Ra Udendale lived at Tariki. He kept a registry of his gluttonous exploits. A row of stones outside his house marked the bodies he had eaten. This row was 230 paces long, and the stones in it numbered 820 and 72. Each stone represented a body. The row of stones might have been longer, had not, Rau, uh, not had Raundandi unfortunately received a spear in the small of his back in a bush skirmish on Somosomo, and had served up on the and had served on the table of Naguli, whose mediocre string of stones numbered only forty-eight. The hard-worked, fever-stricken missionary stuck doggedly to their task, at times despairing and looking forward for some special manifestation, some outburst of pestilence fire that could bring a glorious harvest of souls. By a cannibal Fuji had remained obdurate. The fizzle-headed man-eaters were loath to leave their flesh-pots so long as the harvest of human carcasses was plentiful. Sometimes when the harvest was too plentiful, they imposed on the missionaries by letting the word slip out that on such a day there would be killing and barbecue. Promptly, the missionaries would buy the lives of the victims with sticks of tobacco, fathoms of calico, and quarts of trade beads. Nevertheless, the chiefs drove the handsome trade, and thus disposing of their surplus live meat. Also, they could always go out and catch more. It was at this juncture that John Starhurst proclaimed that he would carry the gospel from coast to coast of the great land, and that he would be begin by penetrating the mountain fastness of the headwaters of the 
Ruav River, his words were received with consternation. The native teachers wept softly. His fellow missionaries strove, strove to dissuade him. The king of Renau warned him that the mountain dwellers were surely Kai Kai, him Kai meaning to eat, and that he, the king of Rar, Rewa, having become Lotu, would be put to the necessity of going to war with the mountain dwellers. That he could not conquer them, he was perfectly aware that they might come down the river and sack Ruwa village. He was likewise perfectly aware, but what was he to do? If John Starhurst persisted in going out and being eaten, there would be a war that would cost hundreds of lives. Later in the day, the deputization of Rewild chiefs waited upon John Starhurst. He heard them patiently and argued patiently with them. They thought and abated not a whim of his purpose. To his fellow missionaries he explained that he was not bent upon martyrdom, that the call had come from him to carry the gospel of Vita Luvi, and that he was merely obeying the Lord's wish. To the traitors who came and objected, most strenuously of all, he said, Your objections are valueless. They consist merely of the damage that may be done your business. You are interested in making money, but I am interested in saving souls. The heathens of this dark land must be saved. John Starhurst was not a fanatic. He would have been the first man to deny the, impute the imputation. He was eminently sane and practical. He was sure that his mission would result in good, and he had private visions of igniting a Pentecostal spark in the souls of the mountaineers and inaugurating a revival that would sweep down out of the mountains and across the links and breasts of the great land from sea to sea and to the isles in the midst of the sea. There was no wild lights in his mind, mild gray eyes, but only calm resolution and unflattering trust in the higher power that was guiding him. One man only he found to approve of his project, and that was Rau Vaitu, who secretly encouraged him and offered to lend him guides to the foot, first foothill. John Starhurst, in turn, was greatly pleased with Rau Vaitu's contact. From an incorrigible heathen with a heart as black as his practices, Rau Vaitu was beginning to emulate light. He even spoke of becoming Lotu. True, three years before, he had expressed a similar intention and would have entered the church had not John Starhurst entered objections to his bringing his four wives along with him. Ravi too had an economic had an economic and ethical objection to monogamy. Besides, the missionary's hair-splitting objection had offered him, and to prove that he was a free agent and a man of honor, he had swung his huge war club over Starhurst's head. Starhurst had escaped by rushing in under the club and holding on to him until help arrived, but all of that was now forgiven and forgotten. Ravitu was coming into the church, not merely as a converted heathen, but as a converted polygamist as well. He was only waiting, he assured Starhurst, until his oldest wife, who was very sick, should die. John Starhurst journeyed up the sluggish rewall in one of Ravutu's canoes. The canoe was the canoe was to carry him for two days. When the head of the navigation reached it would return. Far in the distance, lifted into the sky, could be seen the great smoky mountains that marked the backbone of the great land. All day John Starhurst gazed at them with eager yearning. Sometimes he prayed silently, at other times he was joined in prayer by Naru, a native teacher who for seven years had been low to, ever since the day he had been saved from the hot oven by Dr. James Ellery Brown at the trifling expense of one hundred sticks of tobacco, two cotton blankets, and a large bottle of painkiller. At the last moment, after twenty hours of solitary sublimation and prayer, Naruto's ears had heard the call 
to go forth with John Starhurst on the mission to the mountains. Master, I will surely go with thee, he had announced. John Starhurst had hailed him with sober light. Truly the Lord was with him thus to spur on so broken spirit a creature as Naru. I am indeed without spirit, the weakest of the Lord's vessels, Naru explained. The first day in the canoe, you should have faith stronger. Faith, the missionary chided him. Another canoe journeyed up the rewall that day, but it had journeyed an hour stern, and it took care not to be seen. This canoe was also the property of Rauvitu in the Iro Irola, Rauvitu's first cousin and trusted henchman, and in the small basket that never left his hand was a whale tooth. It was a magnificent tooth, fully six inches long, beautifully proportioned, the ivory turned yellow and purple with age. The tooth was likewise the property of Rauvitu, and in Fiji, when such a tooth goes forth, things usually happen, for this is the virtue of the whale tooth. Whoever accepts it cannot refuse the request that many accompany it or follow it. The request may be anything from human life to a tribal alliance, and no Fijian is so dead to honor as to deny the request once the tooth has been accepted. Sometimes the request hangs fire, or the fulfillment is delayed with untoward consequences. High up the Rewa, the village of the chief, Mongordio, by name John Starhurst, rested at the end of the second day of the journey. In the morning, attended by Naru, he expected to start on foot for the smoky mountains that were now green and velvety with the nearest. Mongordio was sweet-tempered, mild-mannered, little old chief, short-sighted and afflicted with elephanesis, and no longer inclined toward the turbulence of war. He received the missionary with warm hospitality, gave him food from his own table, and even discussed religious matters with him. Mongordio was of an inquiring bend of mind and pleased John Starhurst greatly by asking him to account for the existence and beginning of things. When the missionary had finished his summary of the creation according to Genesis, he saw that Mongordio was deeply affected. The little old chief smoked silently for some time. Then he took the pipe from his mouth and shook his head sadly. It cannot be, said, I, Mongordio, in my youth, was a good workman with the Adis. Yet three months did it take me to make a canoe, a small canoe, a very small canoe. And you say that this land and water was made by one man? Nay, it was made by one god. The one true God, the missionary interrupted. It is the same thing, Mongordio went on, that all the land and all the water, the trees, the fish, the bush, and the mountains, the sun, the moon, the stars, were made in six days. Now, now I can tell you that in my youth I was able, I was an able man, yet it did require me three months for one small canoe. It is a story to frighten children with, but no man can believe it. I am a man, the missionary said. True, you are a man, but it is not given to my dark understanding to know what you believe. I tell you, I do believe that everything was made in six days. So you say, so you say, the old cannibal murmured soothingly. It was not until after John Starhurst and Aru had gone off to bed that Ariola crept into the chief's house and after a diplomatic speech handed the whale-tooth to Mongordio. The old chief held the tooth in his hand for a long time. It was a beautiful tooth and he yearned for it. Also he divined the request that must accompany it. No, no whale teeth were beautiful. His mouth watered for it, but he passed it back to Irula with many apologies. In the early dawn, John Starhurst was afoot, striding along the bush tail with his big leather boots, and at his heels the faithful Naru himself at the heels of a naked guide led him by Mondorio to show the way to the next village, which was reached by midday. Here a new guide showed the way. A mile in the rear plodded 
Irola, the whale-tooth in the basket, slung on his shoulder. For two days more he brought up the missionary's rear, offering the tooth to the village chiefs, but the village after village refused the tooth. It followed so quickly the missionary's advent that they divined that their request would be made and would have none of it. They were getting deep into the mountains, and Ariola took a secret trail cut in head of the missionary and reached the stronghold of Bulai Gitora. Now the bully was unaware of John Stewart's imminent arrival. Also the tooth was beautiful and extraordinary specimen. While the coloring of it was of the rarest order, the tooth was presently public publicity. The bully of Gitora, seated on the best mat, surrounded by his chiefmen, three busy fly brooches at his back designed to deceive from the hand of the her his herald, the whale-tooth presented by Ravutu and carried into the mountains by his cousin, Aria. A clapping of hands went up at the acceptance of the present. The assembled headmen, heralds, and fly-brushers cried aloud in chorus, Ah, awu, 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 ah, awu, 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 atabit lawu, awu, amunda, amunda, amunda. Soon come a man, a white man, Ariel began, after the proper pause. He is a missionary man, and he will come today. Ravuta is pleased to desire his boots. He wishes to present them to his good friend Mongerio, and it is his mind to send them with the feet along send them with the feet along in them. For Mongerio is an old man, and his teeth are not good. Be sure, Obuli, that the feet go along in the boots. As for the rest of him it may stop here. The delight in the whale tooth faded out of Bully's eyes, and he glanced about him dubiously, yet he had already accepted the tooth. A little thing like a missionary does not matter, Ariona prompted. No, a little thing like a missionary does not matter, the bully answered himself again. Mongorio shall have the boots. Do you, you young men, some three or four of you, and meet the missionary on the trail. Be sure you bring back the boots as well. It's too late, said Ariona. Listen, here he comes now. Breaking through the thicket of bush, John Starhurst, with Naru close on his heels, strode upon the scene. The famous boots, having filled and wetted, waded the stream, squirted fine jets of water at every step. Starhurst looked about him with flashing eyes, upborne by an unwavering trust, untouched by doubt or fear. He exulted in all that he saw. He knew th that since the beginning of time, he was the first white man to ever tread the mountain strongholds of Gitor. The grass house clung to the steep mountain side or overhung the rustling riva, riwa on either side toward a mighty precipice, and at the best three hours of sunlight penetrated the narrow gorge. No coconuts nor bananas were to be seen, through dense tropic vegetation, overran everything, dripping in airy festoons from the sheer lips of the precipice and running riot in all the canned ledges. At the far end of the gorge, Riwa leaped eight hundred feet in a single span, while the atmosphere of rock forest pulsated with rhythmic thunder of the fall. From the bully's house, John Stewart saw emerging the bullies and his followers. Bring your good tidings, the missionary was the missionary's greeting. Who has sent you? the bully rejoined quietly. God, it is a new name in Vitulhu, the Buni grinned. Of what island villages or passes may he be chief? He is the chief over all lands, all villages, all passes, John Starhurst answered solemnly. He is the Lord over heaven and earth, and I am come to Bring his word to you. Has he sent whale teeth? Was the insolent query. No, but more precious than whale teeth is the... It is the custom between chiefs to send whale teeth, the bully interrupted. Your chief is neither a new guard, or you are a fool to come empty-handed in the mountain. Behold, a more generous than you is before you. So saying, he showed the whale tooth 
he had received from Ariola. Naru groaned. Is it the well-tooth of Naravito? He whispered to Starhurst. I know it well. Now we are undone. A gracious thing, the missionary answered, passing his hand through the long beard, his long beard and adjusting his glasses. Ravitu has arranged that we should be well received. But Naru groaned again and backened away from the heels he had dodged so faithfully. Ravutu is soon to become Lutu, Starhurst explained, and I have come bringing the Lutu to you. I want none of your Lutu, said Bully proudly, and it is in my mind that you will be clubbed to this day. The Bully nodded to one of his big mountaineers, who stepped forward swinging a club. Naru bolted into the nearest house, seeking to hide among the women and mats, but John Starhurst sprang in under the club and threw his arm around the executioner's neck. From this point, the advantage he proceeded to argue. He was arguing for his life, and he knew it, but he was neither excited nor afraid. It would have been an evil thing for you to kill me, he told the man. I have done you no wrong, nor have I done the bully wrong. So well did he cling to the neck of the one man that they dared not strike with their clubs, and he continued to cling and dispute for his life with those who clamored for his death. I am John Starhurst, he went on calmly. I have labored in Fuji for three years, and I have done it for no profit. I am here among you for good. Why should any man kill me? To kill me will not profit any man. The bully stole a look at the whale-tooth. He was well paid for the deed. The missionary was surrounded by a mass of naked savages, all struggling to get him. The dead song, which is the song of the oven, was raised and his exploitations could no longer be heard, but so cunningly did that he twined the wreath of his body of the captor that the death blow would not be struck. Irona smiled, but the bully grew angry. Away with you, he cried. A nice story to go back to the coast, and a dozen of you and one missionary without weapons, weak as a woman, overcoming all of you. Wait, O bully, John Starhurst called out from the thick of the scuffle, and I will overcome even you, for my weapons and truth and right, and no man can withstand them. Come to me, then, the bully answered, for my weapon is only a poor miserable club, and as you say, it cannot withstand you. The group separated from him, and John Starhurst stood alone, facing the bully who was leaning on an enormous knotted war club. Come to me, missionary man, and overcome me, the bully challenged. Even so will I come to you and overcome you, John Starhurst made answer. First wiping his spectacles and setting them properly, he began his advance. The bully raised his club and waited. In the first place, my death will profit you nothing, began the argument. I leave the answer to my club, was the bully's reply, and to every point he made the same reply, and at the same time watching the missionary closely in order to forestall the cunning running under the lifted club. Then, and for the first time, John Starhurt knew that his death was at hand. He made no attempt to run in. Bareheaded, he stood in the sun and prayed aloud the mysterious figure of the inevitable white man who with bible bullet or rum bottle had confronted the amazing savage in every stronghold even so stood john starhurst and the rock fortress of the bully of getora forgive them for they know not what they do he prayed o lord have mercy on fuji have compassion for fuji jehovah hear this for us his sake Thy son whom thou didst give this, though him all men might also become thy children. From thee we came, and our minds is that, that thee we may return. The land is dark, O Lord, the land is dark, but thou art might to save. Reach out thy hand, O Lord, and save Fuji, poor cannibal Fuji. The bully grew impatient. Now will I answer thee, he muttered, at the same time swinging the club with both hands. Naru, hiding among the women and the mats, heard the impact of the blow and shuddered. Then the death song arose, and he knew his beloved missionary's body being dragged to the oven as he heard the words, 
Drag me gently, drag me gently, for I am the champion of my land. Give thanks, give thanks, give thanks. The next single voice arose out of the den, asking, Where is the brave man? A hundred voices bellowed the answer, Gone to be dragged into the oven and cooked. Where is the coward? The single voice demanded. Gone to report, the hundred voices bellowed back. Gone to report, gone to report. Naru groaned in anguish of spirit. The words of the old song were true, that he was the coward, and nothing remained to him but to go and report. Maokai He weighed one hundred and ten pounds, his hair kinky and euroid, and he was black. He was particularly black. He was neither blue-black nor purple-black, but plum-black. His name was Maokai, and he was the son of a chief. He had three tambos. Tambos is Malaysian for taboo, and his first cousin was Polynesian world. Maku's three taboos were as follows. First, he must never shake hands with a woman, nor have a woman's hand touch him or any of his personal belongings. Secondly, he must never eat clams, nor any food from a fire in which clams have been cooked. Thirdly, he must never touch a crocodile, nor travel in a canoe, that carried any part of a crocodile, even if it is as large as a tooth. Of the different black were his teeth, which were deep black or perhaps lamp black. They had been made so in a single night by his mother, who had compressed about ten of them to a powdered mineral that was dug from the landslide back of Port Adams. Port Adams is a saltwater village on Maleta, Emileta is the most savage island in the Solomons, so savage that no trader or planters have yet gained a foothold on it. While from the time of the earliest fishers and sandalwood traders down to the latest labor recruiters, equipped with automatic rifles and gasoline engines, scores of white adventurers had been passed out by tomahawks and soft-nosed Snyder bullets, so Malata remains today in the 20th century the stamping ground of labor recruiters who farms its coast for laborers who engage in contracts themselves to toil on the plantations of neighboring and more civilized islands for a wage of $30 a year. The natives of those, neighbor the natives of those neighboring and more civilized islands have themselves become too civilized to work on plantations. Maokai's ears were pierced, not in one place nor two places, but in a couple dozen places. In one of the smaller holes carried a clay pipe. The large holes were too large for such use. The bowl of the pipe would have fallen through. In fact, the largest hole in each ear had habitually worn round wooden plugs that were an even four inches in diameter. Roughly speaking, the circumference of said holes was twelve and one-half inches. Maokai was Catholic in his taste, and the various smaller holes he carried such things as empty rifle cartridges, horseshoes, nails, copper screws, and pieces of string, braided and scented strips of green leaf, and in the cool of day scarlet hibiscus flowers, from which it will be seen that pockets were not necessary to his well-being. Besides, pockets were impossible, for his only wearing appeal consisted of a piece of calico several inches wide, a pocket knife he wore in his hair, and a blade snapped down on a kinky lock. He was most prized, his most prized possession was the handle of a china cup, which he suspended from a ring of a turtle shell, which in turn was passed through the partition cartilage of his nose. But in spite of the embellishments, Makai had a nice face, it was really a pretty face viewed by any standard, and for a Malaysian it was a remarkably good-looking face. It was one fault was the lack of strength. It was softly effeminate, mostly girlish. The features were small, regular, and delicate. The chin was weak, and the mouth was weak. There was no strength, no character in the jaws, forehead, and nose. In the eyes only could be caught any hint of the unknown quantities, that were so large a part of his makeup, and the other persons could not understand. These unknown quantities were pluck, 
perensities, fearlessness, imagination, and cunning. When they found expression in some constant and striking action, those about him were astounded. Maku's father was a chief over the village at Port Adams, and thus by birth a saltwater man, Makai, Makai was half amphibious. He knew the way of the fish and the oysters and the reef was an open book to him. Canoes also he knew, and he learned to swim when he was a year old. At seven years he could hold his breath a full minute and swim straight down to the bottom through thirty feet of water, and at seven years he had stolen by a bushman who cannot even swim and who is afraid of salt water. Therefore Maku saw the sea only from a distance, though rifts in the jungle and from open spaces on high mountain sides. He became the slave of old Fanfora, the head chief over a score of scattered bush villages on the range lips of Malita, and the smoke of which on calm mornings is about the only evidence in seafaring white men have the teeming interior population. For the whites do not penetrate Malita. They tried it once in the days when the search was for gold, but they always left their heads behind to grin from the smoky rafters of the bushman huts. When Makai was a young man of seventeen, Fanfora got out of tobacco. He got dreadfully out of tobacco. It was hard times in all his village. He had been so guilty of a mistake. So was his harbor so small that a large schooner could not swing at anchor, at anchor in it. It surrounded by mangroves and overhung the deep water. It was a trap, and into the trap sailed two white men in a small sketch. They were after recruits, and they possessed much tobacco and trade goods to say. Nothing of the three rifles and plenty of ammunition. Now there were no saltwater men living in Sioux, and it was there that the bushmen could come down to the sea. The catch did a splendid traffic. It signed on twenty recruits the first day, and even old Fanfora signed on. And that same day, the score of new recruits chopped off the two white men's head and killed the boat's crew and burdened the catch. Thereafter, and for three months, there was tobacco, tobacco and trade goods in plenty, and despair in all the bush villages. Then came the man of war, and threw shells for miles into the foothills, frightening the people out of their villages and into the deeper bush. Next, the man of war sent landing parties ashore. The villages were all burned, along with the tobacco and trade stuff. The coconuts and bananas were chopped down, the taro gardens uprooted, and the pigs and chickens killed. It taught Fanfora a lesson, but in the meantime he was out of tobacco. As his young men were too frightened to sign on with the recruiting vessels, that was why Fenfora ordered his slave, Maoki, to be carried down and signed on for half a case of tobacco in advance, along with knives, axes, calico, and beads, which he would pay for with his toil on the plantation. Maokai was sorely frightened when they brought him on board the schooner. He was a lamb led to slaughter, White men were ferocious creatures. They had to be, or else they would not make a practice of venturing along the Malitian coast into all harbors, two on a schooner, when each schooner carried about fifteen to twenty blacks as boats, crew, and often as high as sixty or seventy black recruits. In addition to this, there was always the danger of the shore population. The sudden attack and the cutting off of the schooners and all hands, truly white men must be terrible. Besides, they're possessed on such devil-devil rifles that shot very rapidly many times, things of iron and brass that made the schooners go where they had no wind, and boxes that talked and laughed just as men talked and laughed. Aye, and he had heard of one white man's whose particular devil-devil was so powerful that he could take out all his teeth, and put them back in at will. Down into the cabin they took Maokai. On deck the one white man kept guard, with the two revolvers in his belt. In the cabin the other white man sat with a book before him, in which he inscribed strange marks and lines. He looked at Maokai as though 
he had been a pig or a fowl, glanced under the hollows of his arms and wrote in his book. Then he held out the riding stick, and Mackay just barely touched it with his hand, and in doing so, pledged himself to toil for three years on a plantation in Mungling Soap Company. It was not explained to him that the will of the ferocious white man would be used to enforce the pledge, and that behind all, for the same use, was all the power and the worship of Great Britain. The other blacks there were on board from unheard-of far places, and when the white men spoke to them, they tore the long feathers from Makui's hair and cut the same short, the, shank, the same hair short and wrapped about his waist a lava of bright yellow calico. After many days on the schooner, and after beholding more land and island that he had ever dreamed of, he was landed on New Georgia and put to work in a field clearing jungle and cutting cane grass. For the first time he knew what work was, even as a slave to Fenfora, he had not worked like this, and he did not like work. It was up at dawn and in at dark, and two meals a day. The food was tiresome for weeks at a time. They were given nothing but sweet potatoes to eat, and for weeks at a time it would be nothing but rice. He cut out the coconut from the shells day after day, and for long days and weeks he fed the fires that smoked the copra till his eyes got sore and he was set to feeling trees. He was a good axeman, and later he was put in the bridge-building gang. Once he was punished for being put in the road-building gang. At times he served as a boat's crew in the whale-boats. Then they brought in copra from distant beaches, and when the white men went out to dynamite fish. Among other things, he learned Benich Beach Dinier English, with which he could talk to all white men, and with all recruits who otherwise would have talked in thousand different dialects. Also, he learned certain things about the white men, particularly that they kept their word. If they told a boy he was going to receive a stick of tobacco, he got it. If they told a boy he would knock down seven, they would knock seven bells out of him if he did a certain thing. When he did that thing, seven bells invariably were knocked out of him. Makai did not know what seven bells were, but they occurred in Beach Delmer, and he imagined them to be blood and teeth that sometimes accompanied the process of knocking out seven bells. One other thing he had learned, no boy was struck or punished unless he did wrong. Even when the white men were drunk, as they were frequently, they never struck unless a rule had been broken. Makai did not like the plantation. He hated work, and he was the son of a chief. Furthermore, it was ten years since he had been stolen from Port Adams by Fanfo and was homesick. He, had e he was even homesick for the slavery under Fanfo. So he ran away and struck back into the bush with the idea of working southward to the beach and stealing a canoe which to go home to Port Adams. But the fever got him and he was captured and brought back more dead than alive. The second time he ran away in the company of two Malita boys, they got down the coast twenty miles and were hiding in a hut of a Malita freeman who dwelt in the village, but in the dead of night two white men came who were not afraid of all the village people who knocked seven bells out of the three runways, tied them like pigs, and tossed them into the whaleboat. But the man in whose house they had hidden, several times the bell must have been knocked out of him from the way the hair and the skin and teeth flew, and he was discouraged for the rest of his natural life from harboring runaway laborers. For a year, Mankai Maukai toiled on, then he was made a houseboy and good food and easy times, with light work and keeping the house clean and serving the white men with whiskey and beers at all hours of the day and most hours of the night he liked it but he liked port adams more and he had two years longer to serve but two years were too long for him in the throes of homesickness he had grown wiser with years of service and had been now a houseboy he had opportunity he had the cleaning of the rifles 
and he knew where the key to the storeroom was hung. He planned to escape, and one night ten Malaysian boys and Woy Boy from San Cristobal sneaked from the barracks and dragged one of the whaleboats down the beach. It was Mankai who supplied the key that opened the padlock on the boat, and it was Maokai who equipped the boat with a dozen wrenches and an immense amount of ammunition, a case of dynamite with detonators and fuse, and ten cases of tobacco. The northwest monsoon was blowing, and they fled south in the night time, hiding by day on detached uninhabited islets, and dragging their whale boat into the bush on the large islands. Thus they gained Goldicara, skirted halfway along it, and crossed the indispensable straits to Florida Island. It was there that they killed the San Cristobal boy, saving his head and cooking and eating the rest of him. The Malenta coast was only twenty miles away, but the last night a strong current and baffling winds prevented them from gaining across. Daylight found them still several miles from their goal, but daylight brought a clutter in which were two white men who were not afraid of even eleven Malta men, armed with twelve rifles. Makai and his companions were carried back to Tolgeti, where they lived great, lived the great master of all white men, and the great master held a court, after which one by one the runaways were tied up and given twenty lashes each, and sentenced to a fine of fifteen dollars. They were sent back to New Georgia, where the white men knocked out seven bells out of them all around and put them to work. But Maokai was no longer a houseboy. He was put in the road-making gang. The fine of fifteen dollars had been paid by the white men from who he had run away, and he was told that he would have to work it out, which meant six months of additional toil. Further, his snare of the stolen tobacco earned him another year of toil. Port Adams was now three years and a half away, so he stole a canoe one night and hid in the islets of Manu Strait, passed through the straits, and began working along the eastern coast of Isabel, only to be captured two-thirds of the way along by the white men on Merger Lagoon. After a week he escaped them and took to the bush. There were no bush natives on Isabel, only salt-water men, who were all Christians. The white men put up a reward of five hundred sticks of tobacco, and every time Maokai ventured down the sea to steal a canoe, he was chased by saltwater men. Four months after, four months of this passed, and when the reward having been raised to a thousand sticks, he was caught and sent back to New Georgia and the road-building gang. Now a thousand sticks were worth fifty dollars, and Maokai had to pay the reward himself, which required a year and eight labor a year and eight months' labor. So Port, Adam, so Port Adams was now five years away. His homesickness was greater than ever, and it did not appear to him to settle down and be good, work out for his... It did not appear to him to settle down and be good, work out his four years and go home. The next time he was caught in that very act of running away, his case was brought before Mr. Halfby, the island manager of Mongling Soap Company, who adjusted him incorrigibly. The company had plantations on Santa Cruz Islands, hundreds of miles across the sea, and there it sent it sent its Solomon Island correctables, and there incorrigibles, and there Monkey was set, though he never arrived. The schooner stopped at Santa Ana, and in the night Manuka swam ashore, where he stole two rifles and a case of tobacco from the traders and got away in a canoe to Cristoval. Malatna was now to the north, fifty or sixty miles away, but when he attempted the passage, he was caught by a light gale and driven back to Santana, where the traders clapped him in irons and held him against the return of the schooner from Santa Cruz. The two rifles the traders recovered, but the case of tobacco was charged up to Makai at the rate of another year. The sum of the years he now owed the company was six. On the way back to New Georgia, the schooner dropped anchor in Maru Sound, which lies to the southeastern extremity of Guadalcanar. 
Makai sent Am ashore with hands cuffed on his wrists and got away to the bush. The schooner went on, but Mangling trader ashore offered a thousand sticks, and to him Makai was brought by the bushman, and with a year and eight months tacked on to his account. Again and before the schooner called in, he got away, this time in a whaleboat accompanied by a case of the trader's tobacco, but the northwest gale wretched upon him, and Uki were the Christian natives, stole his tabasco, and turned him over to the Mongolian trader who resided there. The tobacco the natives stole meant another year for him, and the tale was now eight years and a half. We'll send him to Lord Ho, said Mr. Havby. Bun Bunksters is there, and we'll let him settle it between them. It will be a case, I imagine, of Maokai getting Bunster or Bunster getting Maokai, a good riddance in either event. If one leaves Morange Lagoon on Isabel and steers a course of due north and magnetic, and at the end of a hundred and fifty miles he will lift and be pounded he will lift the pounded coral beaches of Lord Howell above the sea. Lord Howell is a ring of land some one hundred and fifty miles in circumference, several hundred yards wide at its widest, and towing in place to a height of ten feet above sea level. Inside this ring the sand is a mighty lagoon, studied with coral etches. Lord Howell belongs to the Solomons, neither geographically nor etheology. It is a toll where the Solomons are on high islands, and its people are the language of Polynesian, while the inhabitants are of the Solomons are Malaysians. Lord Howell had been populated by the westward Polynesian drift, which continues to this day, bigger outer canoes being washed upon its beaches by the south trade that were there which that there had been a slight Malaysian drift in the period of the northwest monsoon is so also evident. Nobody ever comes to Lord Howe or Antikoi Java as it is sometimes called. Thomas Cook and Sons do not sell tickets to it and tourists do not dream of its existence. Now even to white missionaries has land has landed on the shore. It is five thousand natives are as peaceable as they are primitive, yet they were not always peaceable. The sailing directors speak of them as hostile and treacherous, but the men who compiled the sailing directives have never heard of the chances that worked in the heart of the inhabitants, who not many years ago cut off a big bark and killed all the hands, with the exception to, of the second mate. The survivors carried the news to his brother, and the captains of three trading schooners returned with him to Lord Howell. They sailed their vessels right into the lagoon and proceeded to preach the white man's gospel, that only white men shall kill white men, and that the lesser breed should keep hands off. The schooners sailed up and down the lagoon, harrowing and destroying. There was no escape from the narrow sand circle, no brush to which to flee. The men were shot down at sight, and there was no avoiding being sighted. The villagers were burned and canoes smashed. The chickens and pigs were killed. The precious coconut trees chopped down. For a month, this continued. When the schooners sailed away, but the fear of the white men had been seared into the souls of the islanders, and never again were they rash enough to harm one. Max Bunster was the one white man on Lord Howell, trading in the pay of ambiguities and ubiquitous moon's gleam soap company and the company biltered him on lord howe because the next to getting rid of him it was the most out of the way place to be found the company did not get rid of him was due to the difficulty of finding another man to take his place he was a strapping big german with something wrong in his brain semi-madness would be a charitable statement of his condition he was a bully and a coward and a thrice bigger savage than any savage of the island. Being a coward, his brutality was one of a cowardly order. When he first went to the company's employee, he was stationed on Salvo. When the consumptive colonel was sent to take his place, he beat him up with his fist and sent him off a wreck in the schooner that brought him. Mr. Havby next selected a young Yorkshire giant to relieve Bunster, 
the Yorkshire man had a reputation as a bruiser and preferred fighting to eating, but Bunster wouldn't fight. He was a regular little lamb for ten days, at the end of which the Yorkshire man was prostrated by a combining attack of dysentery and fever. Then Bunster went for him, among other things letting him down and jumping on a score or so of times. Afraid of what would happen when his victims recovered, Bunster fled away in the cutter to Grovito, where he sig signalized himself by beating up a young Englishman already crippled by a Borer bullet through the hips. Then it was that Mr. Haverby sent Bunster to Lord Hull, the falling-off place. He celebrated his landing by moping up a half a case of gin and by thrashing the elderly and wheezy mate of the schooner which had brought him. When the schooner departed, he called the Kanakas down to the beach and challenged them to throw in a wrestling bout, promising a case of tobacco to the one who succeeded. Three Kanakas he threw, but was promptly thrown by a fourth, who instead of receiving the tobacco, got a bullet through his lungs. And so began Bunster's reign on Lord Hood. Three thousand sand people lived in the primitive village, but it was deserted even in broad day when he passed through. Men, women, and children fled before him. Even the dogs and pigs got out of the way. While the king was not above hiding under a mat, the two prime ministers lived in terror of Bunder, who never discussed any moot subject, but struck out with his fist instead. And Lord Howell came to Mankai to toil for Buster for eight long years and a half. There was no escaping from Lord Howell. For better or worse, Bunster and he were tied together. Bunster weighed 200 pounds. Mackay weighed 110. Bunster was a degenerate brute, but Mackay was a primitive savage, both, while both had wills and a way of their own. Mackay had no idea of the sort of master he was to work for. He had no warning, and we had concluded as a matter of course that Bunster would be like any other white man, a drinker of much whiskey, and a ruler and lawgiver who always kept his word, and who never struck a boy underserved. Bunster had the advantage. He knew all about Maokai, and gloated over the coming into possession of him. The last cook was suffering from a broken arm and a dislocated shoulder, so Bunster made Maokai cook and general houseboy, and Maokai soon learned that there were white men and white Maokai soon learned that there were white men and white men. On the very day the schooner departed, was he ordered to buy chicken from a Samiz, the native Torgan missionary. But Samiz had sailed across the lagoon and would not be back for three days. Makai returned with the information. He climbed the step stairway. The house stood on piles twelve feet above the sand, entered the living room to report. The trader demanded the chicken. Maokai opened his mouth to explain the missionary's absence, but Bunster did not care for his explanation. He struck out with a fist. The blow caught Maokai on the mouth and lifted him up into the air. Clear through the doorway, he flew across the narrow vendor, breaking the top railing and down to the ground. His lips were contust, shapeless mass, and his mouth was full of blood and broken teeth. That will teach you to back talk. Don't go with me, the trader shouted. Purple with rage peering down over him, the broken railing. Maokai had never met a white man like this, and he resolved to walk small and never offend. He saw the boat boy knocked about, and one of them put in irons for three days, with nothing to eat for the crime of breaking a rowlock while pulling it. Then, too, he heard the gossip of the village and learned why Bunster had taken a third wife by force, as was well known. The first and second wives lay in the graveyard under the white coral sand with slabs of coral rock at head and feet. They had died, it was said, from beating. He was the beating he had given them. The third wife was certainly ill-used, and Maokai could see for himself. But there was no way by which to avoid offering the white man who seemed offended with life. When Maokai kept silent, he was struck and called a sullen brute. When he spoke, he was struck for giving back talk. When he was brave, Bunster accused him of plotting and gave him a thrashing in advance. 
and when he strove to be cheerful and to smile, he was charged with sneering at his lord and master and given a taste of stick. Bunster was a devil. The village would have done for him had not remembered the lesson of the three schooners. It might have done for him anyway, if there had been a bush to which to flee. As it was, the murder of the white men or any white man would bring a man of war that would kill the offender and chop down the precious coconut trees. There were the boy, boat boys with minds fully made up to drown him by accident at the first opportunity to capsize the cutter. Only Bunster saw to it that the boat did not capsize. Maokai was of a different breed, and escaping being impossible while Bunster lived, he was resolved to get the white man. The trouble was that he could not ever find the chance. Bunster was always on guard. Day and night, his revolver was ready to hand. He permitted nobody to pass behind his back, and Maokai learned, after having been knocked down several times, that Bunster knew that he had more to fear from the good-natured, even sweet-faced Malta boy than from the entire population of Lord Howe. Lord Howe. And it gave added zest to the programming of torment he was carrying out. And Malkai walked small, accepted his punishment, and waited. All the other white men had respected his taboos, but not so Bunster. Malkai's weekly allowance of Tabasco was two sticks. Bunster passed them to his woman and ordered Malkai to receive them from her hand. But this could not be, and Malkai went without his tobacco. In the same way, he was made to miss any meal, miss many a meal, and go hungry many a day. He was ordered to make chowder out of big clams that grew in the lagoon. This can he could not do, for clams were taboo. Six times in succession, he refused to torch, touch the clams, and six times he was knocked senseless. Bunster knew that the boy would die first, but called his refusal mutiny and would have killed him had there been another cook to take his place. One of the trader's favorite tricks was to catch Maokai, kinky locks, and bang his head against the wall. Another trick was to catch Maokai unaware and thrust the live end of a cigar against his flesh. This bunster called vaccination, and Maokai was vaccinated another number of times a week. Once in rage, Bunster ripped the cup handle from Maokai's nose, tearing a hole clear out of the cartilage. Oh, what a mug, was his comment when he surveyed the damage he had wrought. The skin of a shark is like sandpaper, but the skin of a ray fish is like a rasp. In the South Sea, the natives use it as a wood file, and soothing down canoes and paddles. Bunster had a mitten made of the ray fish skin, the time he carried it on Maokai, with one sweep of his hand, it fetched the skin off his back from neck to armpit. Bunster was delighted. He gave his wife a taste of the mitten, then tried it out on thoroughly on the boat boys. The Prime Minister came in for a stroke each, and they had to grin and take it for a joke. Laugh, damn you, laugh, was the cue he gave. Maokai came and for the largest share of the mitten. Never a day passed without a caress from it. There were times when the loss of so much cuticle kept him awake at night, an often half-healed surface was raked raw afresh by the facious Mr. Bunster. Mackay continued to pay his patient wait, secure in his knowledge that sooner or later his time would come, and when he knew what he was going to do, down to the smallest detail, when the time did come. The morning Bunster got up, in a mood for knocking several bells out of the universe, he began at Maokai and wound up on Maokai in the interval knocking down his wife and hammering all the boat boys. At breakfast he called the coffee slop and threw the scalding contents into the cup into the cup into Maokai's face. By ten o'clock Bunster was shivering with with egg and half an hour later he was burning with fever. It was no ordinary attack. It quickly became precacious and developed into a black water fever. The days passed, and he grew weaker and weaker, never leaving his bed. Maokai waited and watched while his skin grew intact, 
and more. His boys, he ordered the boys to the beach and the cutter scrub her bottom and give her a general overhauling. They thought the order immediated from Buster, and they obeyed it. But Buster, at the time, was lying unconscious and giving no orders. This was Maokai's chance, but he still waited. When the worst, when the worst was passed, Buster lay convalescent and conscious, but weak as a baby. Maokai packed his few trinkets, including the china cup, china cup handle, into his trade box. Then he went over to the village and interviewed the king and the two prime ministers. This fellow Bunster, him good fellow, you like him much? he asked. They explained in one voice that they liked the traitor not at all. The minister poured forth a recital of all the indignities and wrong that had been heaped upon them. The king broke down and wept. Maokai interrupted rudely. You save me, me big fellow, master my country. You know like this fellow, white master. No, like me. Plenty good you put hundred coconuts, two hundred coconuts, three hundred coconuts along cutter. Him finish you go sleep him, good fellow. Altogether, Kanaka sleep a good fellow. By my big fellow nose, a long house. You no save here, that fellow knows. You altogether sleep strong fellow too much. In like manner, Maokai interviewed the boat boys when he ordered Buster's wife to return to her family house. Had she refused, he would have been in a quandary, for his tambu would not have permitted him to lay hands on her. The house deserted, he entered the sleeping room, where the traitor lay in a doze. Maokai first removed the revolver, then placed the rayfish mitten on his hand. Buster's fist warning was a stroke of the mitten that removed the skin a full length of his nose. Good fellow, a monkey grinned between two strokes of which he swept the forehead bare and all the others clean off one side of his face. Laugh, damn you, laugh. Makai did his work thoroughly, and the Kankakas, hiding in their houses, heard the big fellow noise. The Brewster made and continued to make for hours more. When Makai was done, he carried the boat compass and all the rifles and ammunition down to Cutter, which proceeded to ballast with a case of tobacco. It was while engaged in this that the hideous skinless thing came out of the house and ran screaming down the beach till it fell in the sand and mowed and jimbered under the scorching sun. Maokai looked toward it and hesitated. Then he went over and removed the head which he wrapped in a mat and stowed in the stern locker of the cutter. So sadly did the Karakas sleep through that long hot day that they did not see the cutter running out through the passage and heading south. Close hauled the southeast trade. Now it was the cutter even sighted on that long track to the shores of Isabel during the tremendous heat beat from there Malita. He landed in Port Adams with a wealth of rifles and tobacco, such as no one man has ever possessed before. But he did not stop there. He had taken a white man's head, and only the bush could shelter him. So back he went to the bush village, where he shot old Fanfora and a half other dozen of chiefmen, and made himself chief over all the villages. When his father died, Maku's brother ruled in Port Adams, and joined together saltwater men and bushmen and the resulting combination was the strongest of ten scores fighting tribes of Malita. More than his fear of the British government was Malachi's fear of all-powerful Monglimso company, and one day a message came to him in the bush reminding him that he owed the company eight and one-half years of labor. He sent back a favorable answer, then appeared the inevitable white man, the captain of the schooner, only white men, during Malki's reign, who ventured the bush and came out alive. This man not only came out, but he brought with him $750 in gold souvenirs, the money price for eight years and a half of labor plus the cost price of certain rifles and cases of tobacco. Malki no longer weighed 110 pounds. His stomach was three times its former girth, and he had four wives. He had many other things, rifles and revolvers, 
the handle of the china cup, an excellent collection of Bushmen's heads, but more precious than the entire collection is another head, perfectly dried and cured, with sandy hair and yellowish beard, which is kept wrapped in the finest fiber lava, lavas, which Maokai goes to war with villages beyond his realm. He inevitably gets out his head, and alone in his grass place, contemplates it long and solemnly. At such times, the hush of death falls on the village, and not even the piccany dares make a noise. The head is esteemed the most powerful devil on Malata, and to be possession of it is ascribed of all Malachi's greatness. I want to thank you for listening to this Quotations Live Today podcast. Uh, this last episode was, this last story was a little bit dark, but uh, yeah, we'll leave it there. The next story we'll read uh, next week is Yaha, Yaha, Yaha. Thank you for coming out. See you later. Bye-bye. Thank you for viewing this Life to Tape video. Life to Tape is part of Fotations, and if you'd like to help, you can visit FotationsDonation.com, where there are ways you can support financially or by donating equipment. If you'd also like to support on social media, that helps out a lot. There's more information on our social media accounts in the links below. Thank you. Bye-bye.